Well, we continue on in our sermon series through the book of 1 Samuel this morning. Considering 1 Samuel chapter 3, verse 1, through chapter 4, verse 1a. One of the best books that I have read on the word of the Lord is The Doctrine of the Word of God by theologian and professor John Frame. In the opening chapter of that book, Frame presents a thought experiment for the reader. Here is how he presents it. Imagine God speaking to you right now, as realistically as you can imagine, perhaps standing at the foot of your bed at night. He speaks to you like your best friend, your parents, or your spouse. There is no question in your mind as to who he is. He is God. In the Bible, God often spoke to people in this way, to Adam and Eve in the garden, to Noah, to Abraham, to Moses. Now imagine that when God speaks to you personally, he gives you some information or commands. Will you then be inclined to argue with him? Will you criticize what he says? Will you find something inadequate in his knowledge or in the rightness of his commands? I hope not, for that is the path to disaster. When God speaks, our role is to believe, obey, delight, repent, mourn, whatever he wants us to do. Our response should be without reservation from the heart. Once we understand, and of course we often misunderstand, we must not hesitate. Now that thought experiment shares much in common with our passage today. Our passage describes how God audibly spoke to a person. But our passage also demonstrates how we ought to respond when God speaks to us. And our passage also indicates the supremacy of revelation given to us by a speaking God. Now, on the surface, this passage seems to be about Samuel, about how he was called to be a prophet, about who he is. And yet I suggest to you, ultimately, that this passage is an indication of who God is, that he is a God who reveals himself. This passage indicates that God is a speaking God. And this passage indicates that we need to understand when he speaks. And we need to respond in obedience when he speaks. So let's begin this morning talking about a God who reveals himself. Point number one, a revealing God. Chapter three, verse one. God is a God that reveals himself through his own words. The aforementioned John Frame and the aforementioned book, The Doctrine of the Word of God, knows that there are three ways that God reveals himself. He reveals himself through events, he reveals himself through persons, and he reveals himself through words. Now, the events by which God reveals himself are things like nature and creation, Things like general history and redemptive history. Psalm 19.1 says, The heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims his handiwork, indicating that God speaks through nature. A sunrise or a sunset is a revelation of God. 
as is the forming of an ant colony or the flight of birds on migration. They reveal God to us. God also reveals himself through history and specifically through redemptive history. Redemptive history are the events whereby God redeems his people from sin. And these mighty acts of God add to the revelation of nature because they show us how God forgives and saves. Well, did you know that God also reveals himself through persons? He is revealed, first of all, through the persons of the Trinity, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. John 14, verse 8 through 9 is a great example. Philip said to him, that is said to Jesus, Lord, show us the Father, and it is enough for us. And Jesus said to him, have I been with you so long and you still do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. So God reveals himself through persons, the the Trinity, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit, being the main persons who he is revealed through. And yet God also reveals himself through human persons. And this is based on our creation in the image of God. Genesis 1.27, so God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. However, our focus today is God's revelation of himself through words, through specifically human words. And these human words are spoken with the divine voice, wherein God conveys his mind, reveals himself to men and to women. These are God's word, or the word of the Lord. Now we read, Now the boy Samuel was ministering to the Lord in the presence of Eli, and the word of the Lord was rare in those days. There was no frequent vision. That's an indication this is a passage, this is a story primarily about God and his revelation through his word. Though, of course, Samuel becoming a prophet is important. The author of 1 Samuel frames Samuel's call with an emphasis on the word of Yahweh. During this time, there was no widespread prophetic ministry of the word of the Lord, and there were not many visions. Now, the word of the Lord and visions, these are parallel phrases, and they speak to God's revelatory engagement with Israel, and we're told it was rare. It seems that from the time of Deborah until the time of this nameless man of God in the second chapter of 1 Samuel, God's people were largely without prophetic revelation. It was rare. There were not many visions. This really makes a lot of sense if we consider the period of time in which this book takes place. Remember, this is the end of the age of judges. Israel is at one of its lowest points in its history. The people are bankrupt morally. They are far from God. We read in Proverbs 29, 18, where there is no prophetic vision, the people cast off restraint. And without the prophetic activity of of God who was bringing the revelation through his words to his people, they cast off restraint. They indulged in sin and they were languishing. But this drought of prophetic revelation would soon be over. 
Not to be lost amidst the details of this story is the simple fact that God is a revealing God. God revealing himself to humanity, brothers and sisters, is the bedrock of our faith. All we know and all we understand about God is because he has chosen to reveal himself. And whether it is through the the beauty and the grandeur of the cosmos or through persons, whoever they be, or through the use of human words, particularly in what we now refer to as Scripture, God is a God who reveals himself to us. That's what God is like, which leads to our next point. He is a God who speaks. Point number two, a speaking God. Chapter three, verse two through 10. God reveals himself by speaking. Now, Eli, whose eyesight was failing, was laying down in the pre-dawn hours. This is signified by the fact that the narrator mentions that the lamp of God had not yet gone out. We know that Samuel, Samuel was also lying down, and he was lying down in the temple where the ark of God was. And the Lord calls Samuel to begin with three times. And each time... Samuel gets up and goes to Eli, thinking that the aging priest was the one summoning him. The Lord would call out, and promptly Samuel would respond, Here I am. However, Samuel mistakenly thought that it was Eli who had called him, and therefore he would go to the priest. Initially, as we heard, Eli dismissed Samuel and told him to go back to bed. And so the Lord continued, calling Samuel two more times, Samuel continuing to mistake what was going on. But finally, Eli realized that it may be the Lord who was calling Samuel. And so he gives him instructions. Speak, Lord, for your servant hears. That's how Samuel should respond the next time he heard the voice. And so when the Lord called out to Samuel again, he responded as instructed, and he was ready to listen. Now, these verses begin with a description that is both factual and symbolic. Yes, Eli's eyesight is poor, I'm sure. He was mostly blind. However, he was also spiritually blind. His spiritual sight was weak. He lacked the spiritual vision to lead God's people. It's interesting that it takes several episodes of Samuel getting up out of bed and coming to him, for him to realize what is going on. This is the priest of Israel. One would think the high priest would have been able to recognize this sooner. Nevertheless, the facts and the figurative description continue. We're told that the lamp of God is still burning, indicating that the lamp in the temple, the sanctuary, continued to burn, but was likely in the wee hours of the night. However, we read in Psalm 119, verse 105, that God's word is a lamp, a lamp to our feet and our light to our path. And so the lamp of God's word, the lamp of God's speech, like the lamp in the sanctuary, has not gone out either. It may be dark, it may be dim, but that lamp has not gone out. Though God may have seemed to be silent, he is still a speaking God. And that lamp of his verbal revelation was still burning. Soon Samuel would see this light. 
as God spoke directly to him. Now, Samuel and Eli are both lying down. Samuel is lying in the temple, but Eli is lying in his own space. Samuel, in the temple of the Lord where the ark was. That ark, remember, was built during the time of Moses. It was called the ark of God or the ark of the testimony or the ark of the covenant. Now, it was a relatively small box, about 45 inches long, 27 inches wide, and 27 inches high. It was made of wood and overlaid with gold, and it was fitted with rings so it could be carried with poles. It was where the presence of God rested. Eli finds rest by himself, but Samuel finds rest in the presence of God. Now, as a God who reveals himself, we know that God will speak, but who will he speak to? Will he speak to the spiritually blind priest who was concerned about himself? Or would he speak to the faithful servant who was with God both spatially and figuratively? Would he speak to Eli or Samuel? Well, God, as we heard, the revealing God, the speaking God, addresses Samuel. He's, he calls Samuel's name, and he waits for a response. Three times Samuel misunderstood what was happening, thinking that it was Eli who was calling him. And it wasn't until the third time that Eli finally clues in that God may be at work and gives Samuel the instructions he gives him. Now again, is, is Eli's slowness in figuring this out just the fog of sleep? Is it just the ignorance of someone who has never heard direct speech from God? Or could there be spiritual lethargy here based on the fact that the last time Eli heard the words of God, they were in judgment against him by the man of God? Maybe he, he didn't really want this to be God's voice, and yet it was. Perhaps there's more going on here in the heart of Eli than the narrator explicitly describes. Nevertheless, the fourth time that God addresses Samuel, God repeats his name, Samuel, Samuel. Now the repetition of Samuel's name and those earlier responses of here I am are reminiscent of other episodes in history of Israel. And they're worth considering this morning. In Genesis 22, God spoke to Abraham the father of Israel. Genesis 22, 1. After these things, God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, and he said, here I am. And then in 22, verse 11, but the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, here I am. Now these exchanges occur, I'm sure many of you remember, when Abraham prepared to sacrifice Isaac. He was supposed to sacrifice the promised child whom God had given him and Sarah. Now God stops Abraham from sacrificing Isaac and he says, by myself I have sworn, declares the Lord, because you have done this and you have not withheld your son, your only son, I will surely bless you and I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and as the sand that is on the seashore and your offspring shall possess the gate of his enemies and in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed 
because you have obeyed my voice. The calling out of Abraham's name in this story, the repetition of his name the last time, precedes the declaration of God's covenant with Abraham, the very foundation for God's dealing with people of faith. Then similarly, in in Exodus chapter 3, we read of God speaking to Moses. Exodus 3, verse 1 through 6. Now Moses was keeping the flock of his father-in-law Jethro, the priest of Midian, and he led his flock to the west side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire out of the midst of a bush. He looked, and behold, the bush was burning, yet it was not consumed. And Moses said, I will turn aside to see this great sight, why the bush is not burned. When the Lord saw that he turned aside to see, God called to him out of the bush, Moses, Moses. And he said, here I am. Then he said, do not come near. Take your sandals off your feet. For the place which you are standing is holy ground. And he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. Again, God's call and the repetition of the name Moses, as well as this response, here I am, precedes a great work of redemption by God. And so we ask ourselves, is is the calling of Samuel and the repetition of Samuel's name, Samuel, Samuel, and Samuel's response, here I am. Is this an indication that God is about to do a mighty work of salvation for God's people? It seems so. This is a momentous time for Samuel and for Israel. At a time when the word of the Lord was rare, At a time when there was no frequent vision, God comes speaking words to Samuel. And God also reveals himself visibly. Did you catch that in the text? In the fourth calling out of Samuel's name, we are told that God came and stood when he called Samuel. Samuel had heard God three times before, and now he sees a vision of God along with the sounds that he's hearing. God is a revealing God. God is a speaking God. Now, the next thing we're going to look at is God being a holy God. But we would do well to pause in this moment and consider an application from these verses. You see, Samuel heard the word of God. He didn't, however, understand it. He heard his name being called, but then responded by going to Eli. And one thing we can take away from this story of Samuel's calling is the importance of understanding God's revelation, understanding the word of the Lord. Now, I think there's reasons for it, but Samuel floundered when God initially spoke. He didn't understand accurately the word of the Lord until Eli instructed him. And brothers and sisters, that calls to us this morning. It calls to us to be those who not only understand God's word, but are also able to teach others. If we return to the book of Hebrews for a moment, we remind ourselves that there is an expectation that all believers, all followers of Christ, 
All disciples will grow in their understanding of God's word such that they can teach it to others. Do you remember Hebrews chapter 11 or chapter 5, verse 11 and 12? The author of Hebrews says, About this we have much to say, and it is hard to explain since you have become dull of hearing. For though by this time you ought to be teachers, that was the expectation written to all of them. By this time you ought to be teachers. You need someone to teach you again the basic principles of the oracles of God. The Apostle Paul indicates to the Colossians that they should be able to teach and admonish one another in all wisdom. And that's a function of the word of Christ dwelling richly in them. You see it in Colossians 3.16. For the word of Christ to dwell in you richly is for you to be a person that heeds God's word, that submits to God's word, that understands God's word, and can apply God's word. Again, from the Apostle Paul, we read in Titus chapter 2 that even as the main leader of a church should understand God's word and be able to teach it soundly, so should the congregants. Listen to Paul in Titus chapter 2, verse 1 through 3. But as for you, speaking to Titus, but as for you, teach what accords with sound doctrine. And then he goes on, older men are to be sober-minded, dignified, self-controlled, sound in faith, in love, and in steadfastness. Older women, likewise, are to be reverent in behavior, not slanderers or slaves to much wine. They are to teach what is good. Brothers and sisters, let us be creatures of the word. Let us be people who firmly plant our feet on the bedrock of God's revelation in Scripture. Let us be those who toil to understand it. And let us be those who toil to teach it to others. God's revelation through his words is our very sustenance in a life that pleases God. Let's keep moving this morning. Point number three, a holy God. Chapter 3, verse 10 through 18. God speaks to Samuel, revealing that he is a holy God. In these verses, we have the words that the Lord spoke to Samuel and Samuel's declaration of those words to Eli. In verses 11 through 14, God declares that Eli's house will be punished forever. It'll be punished for the iniquity that he was aware of that he didn't deal with. Eli's sons were blaspheming God and he did not restrain them. Thus, God makes it clear that the iniquity of Eli and the iniquity of Eli's house shall not be atoned for. Now, the full execution of this prophecy, we're told, would cause the ears of people to tingle when they heard it. And this phrase describes the response of people to horrendous events, to cataclysmic judgments. We see it in Jeremiah 19. In Jeremiah 19, God prophesies a judgment against the kings of Judah and against Jerusalem, whereby the area would be called the Valley of Slaughter. Jeremiah 19.3, you shall say, hear the word of the Lord, O kings of Judah and inhabitants of Jerusalem. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, behold, I am bringing such disaster upon this place 
that the ears of everyone who hears it will tingle. We have here a grave and serious judgment that indicates the Lord's perspective of sin and evil. The sin that Eli and Eli's sons had committed had permeated the land and it had polluted the people. And so God's revelation goes beyond just an announcement of what will come. It shines a light on who God is. It shines a light on God's character. God will not tolerate sin. And evil will not ultimately be tolerated evil. God's posture towards sin in these verses gives us, again, good reason to pause this morning and reflect on sin and reflect on God's remedy for sin found in Jesus Christ. Sin is the biblical word for any lack of conformity to the moral law of God. It includes evil actions, evil attitudes, evil words, and evil motives, as well as evil inaction. All sin has consequences. And of those consequences, separation from God is paramount. We read in Isaiah 59, verse 2, your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God, and your sins have hidden his face from you. This separation from God, this separation as a consequence of sin will lead to eternal punishment to being separated from God for eternity. And yet, God's hatred of sin and his holy commitment to punish it did not prevent him from providing a remedy for it and salvation from it. The book of Romans tells us that the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. You see, God frees us from sin, and he frees us from its evil consequences through faith in his Son. We are called, each and every one of us, to believe in Jesus and to trust in his sin-defeating death on the cross and his consequence of sin-defeating resurrection from the dead. Though God hates sin, though he is committed to punishing it. We have not been left without a remedy. I encourage anyone here or anyone watching online who has not dealt with their sin by dealing with God to do so this morning. Our staff, our elders, even many of our congregants would be happy to speak to you about this, to help you in regards to this. You need only ask, and I encourage you to do so. Now, after receiving the revelation, after hearing God speak, after seeing the vision, Samuel returned to bed. Some of the commentaries said that Samuel was probably a teenager at this time, and I think with that, it's probably accurate. God speaks to him. He sees God. Okay, I'm going to go back to bed. But in the morning... Samuel dutifully returns to his service. And we're told that he opens the doors of the house of the Lord. And this detail surely is another instance of a fact being pregnant with figurative truth and symbolism. Because Samuel will be the one who would not only really open 
the doors to God's presence for God's people, but figuratively, he would be the one in this time, in this day, to open the doors of God's presence for all of Israel through the reformation that he would initiate and that he would lead. Now, that being said, Samuel was fearful of telling Eli what he had experienced and what he had heard. And yet Eli insisted on receiving a report. Samuel, at his young age, with minimal experience, behaved exactly as a prophet should behave. He received God's word with expectancy and seriousness, and then he disclosed that revelation fully and faithfully. And Eli receives the words of the Lord with passive submission. He says, it is the Lord. Let him do what seems good to him. Eli's a challenging figure. He has been for me already. Sometimes he seems like a flawed but faithful servant of God. And at other times, he seems like a paradigm of unfaithfulness. The commentators respond the same way to Eli. Consider a couple views of this priest of God. Matthew Henry, the English Puritan minister, famous for his commentary on the whole Bible, sees Eli's resignation to the prophetic word of Samuel as instructive and exemplary suggesting that it is a model of, quote, pious acquiescence. Matthew Henry suggests Eli responded with humble resignation and compares him to the great high priest Aaron and indicates, thus we ought to quiet ourselves under God's rebuke. Then another commentator, A.F. Kirkpatrick, frames Eli differently. He says, Eli's words are the passive resignation of weak character. Though he submits himself patiently to the will of God, he would not rouse himself to actually do the will of God. Well, let's, let's take Eli as he's presented. He is a man with some sense of faithfulness to God, with some sense of faith in God, but ultimately as one whose failures are fittingly judged by God. We can nevertheless learn from Eli this morning. You see, even though Eli lacked the piety of Elkanah, though he lacked the faithfulness of Hannah, though he lacked the devotion of Samuel, he still understood that God was the sovereign ruler of Israel and the universe. And he ultimately understood that when God spoke and revealed himself, that he, Eli, should obey. We see in these Verses that Eli desired to hear the revelation of God. He wanted an account from Samuel. First he asks, what was it that he told to you? And then he demands to know what God has spoken. Do not hide it from me. And finally, he commands Samuel under the threat of a curse to not conceal anything. May God do so to you and more also if you hide anything from me of all that he told you. Brothers and sisters, Eli, like us, has a mingled faith. There's evidence of his faith in God. There's patterns of sin. There's proclamations of conviction. There's times of spiritual lethargy. And yet he desired strongly and insisted that he hear the word of the Lord. He asked, he demanded, he threatened, tell me God's word. 
Let's allow ourselves to be challenged to desire God's revelation as least as much as the priest Eli. Let us pray, God, do a work in us by your Spirit such that we must hear God's Word. We must receive the Word of the Lord. Let's learn from Eli. Now, finally this morning, the, the Word of the Lord coming to Samuel and then being proclaimed by Samuel leads to the establishing of Samuel as a prophet of God in Israel. Last point, an established prophet. Chapter 3, 19 through 4, 1a. God establishes Samuel as a prophet, ensuring that his word continues to go forth in Israel. We've seen early on in this book of 1 Samuel that, that God is clearly at the work at work in the life of Samuel. God was working when Samuel was conceived, 1 Samuel 1.20. And in due time, Hannah conceived and bore a son, and she called his name Samuel, for she said, I have asked for him from the Lord. Samuel's conception was a work of God. And then we read that Lord, the Lord continues to work in Samuel as he grew, 1 Samuel 2.26. Now the boy Samuel continued to grow both in stature and in favor with the Lord and also with men. And in our verses today, that we see that Samuel is established as a prophet. He's established by the Lord, who ensures that his prophecies are effective and that his influence is extensive. Their effectiveness is described by saying, the Lord was with him. And let none of his words fall to the ground. He would be a prophet who would be effective. He also, we also read that all from Dan to Bathsheba knew that Samuel was established as a prophet of the Lord. This is indicating the extensiveness of his influence. Bathsheba was the southernmost area in Israel. Dan, the northernmost. They're saying in all of Israel, he was recognized as a prophet. He would have this extensive influence. So God takes Samuel and establishes him as a national prophet. He is the first national prophet really since the time of Moses. And that's an important fact in this story. And I think we often think this is the primary issue. This is the calling of Samuel. This is the establishing of Samuel is a prophet in Israel, and certainly it is important, and certainly it is about that, but I think there is a more crucial issue. There's an idea of even greater importance, and that's what this story teaches about God's word. We see in these concluding verses of our passage that God's word is powerful. The sinfulness and the unfaithfulness of a nation could not thwart the word of God. He would establish a prophet, even coming out of the time out of the judges. He would use that as an initiation to do a mighty work of salvation in his people. Isaiah 55, verse 10 and 11 says, For as the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return there, but water the earth, making it bring forth and sprout, giving seed to the sower and bread to the eater, so shall my word be that 
goes out from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish that which I purpose and shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. Brothers and sisters, let's rejoice in the fact this morning that God's word is precisely that. It is the supernatural speech of the sovereign of the universe. And his word is powerful. It's powerfully effective. It will not return empty. And it accomplishes the purposes of God. It succeeds in every way that God intends it to. Sin cannot stop the word of the Lord. Evil cannot thwart God's desire to reveal himself to his people. God's word is powerful. It accomplishes what God wills it to accomplish. And we see in this story of the calling of Samuel that God is a God who reveals himself to us. And we understand that God's word is the foundation of his revelation. And therefore, we ought to endeavor to understand it. We ought to endeavor to obey it. And we ought to endeavor to teach it. And I pray that it may be so. Let's pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for this story of the establishing of Samuel as a prophet in Israel and all that would follow this wonderful event in history. And I pray we would understand that, we would meditate on that and learn from it. But Father God, I pray even more this morning that we would look beyond the story of Samuel and see the story of you that you're a God who reveals himself to us. And foundationally for us, your revelation comes to us through your word. And I pray, Father God, that you, by your spirit, would help us to be people who desire to hear and understand and obey your word. Apart from your help, We can't do this. And I pray that as we engage with your word, that Father God, at the very core and center of that would be our engagement with the word who dwelt among us. That we would engage with the gospel of Jesus Christ, learning and loving who he is and what he has done to save us. I pray that for every one of us here this morning believer and unbeliever alike. In Jesus' name, amen.